Turn over in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. You should have an outline there. First Thessalonians chapter four this morning. We've been in this uh, subject matter for some time, but I, it's important that we understand what the Word of God says when it comes to uh, Christ coming back for His church. Amen. And so we've been looking at God's future plan for all believers. And uh, last week we reviewed the differences between the rapture of the church or the snatching, the catching up of the church, and the second coming of Christ. And we talked about how at the rapture, believers meet Christ in the air. Um, It's before the tribulation. Um, We're delivered from the wrath and judgment of God for those seven years. Um, It's a hidden event. The rapture is. In other words, there's nothing that has to take place um, uh, before it happens. It can happen at any moment, and that makes it imminent. And so there's nothing that needs to... uh, There's no prophecies that need to be fulfilled or anything. And that was true even in, in Paul's day, that there was no need for anything to um, be fulfilled before he thought the Lord was going to come back. Whereas the second coming is just pretty much the opposite. It's the believers return to the earth with the Lord after the tribulation, and all unbelievers are judged, and uh, it's seen by all. It's not a secret coming, but it's seen by everybody the second coming of Christ, when he actually comes to earth. And then the last thing, it's after certain events. There's portions of the New Testament that says this has to happen first before Christ can return to earth. And so the next event in prophecy, you could say, is this snatching away or this catching away of the church before the seven-year tribulation. And we read in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that this will happen in the twinkling of an eye. That's not a snap. That's not a blink. That's how much time, literally, it takes for the, the light to flash off the pupil. So we're talking very, very quickly. And you don't know when it's going to happen. That makes it imminent. And all true Christians across the planet that are on earth today that have come to Christ will immediately be caught up. They'll be taken out. They'll be taken away back to be with the Lord in heaven. And then God will unleash a seven-year period of wrath upon this world. Three and a half years, and then another three and a half years, known as the great day of the Lord. And for those who want to go through that, they have a certain theology. It doesn't make sense to me because, remember, Paul is writing here to the Thessalonians, and he's trying to comfort their hearts. He's trying to tell them, hey, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be okay. You know, yeah, you're going to go through a little persecution, but God's going to come back for his church, and he's going to catch us away up to be with him in heaven. And our, if we're alive, we're going to find out how this works, and if we're dead, we're going to find out how it works. And so it's important when that day comes that immediately it's going to be a cataclysmic event across the entire globe. Think about it. If you're flying in a jet and you happen to have two Christian pilots, <laughs> guess what happens to the plane? It's gone down. Okay, so we're not talking, think of intersections, people going through intersections, red lights, whatever. Immediately, all those who have faith in Christ are going to be snatched away. And it's going to be an overwhelming event for this world. And that's just the beginning of this seven-year period of tribulation that God will unleash his wrath on all the unrighteous 
and it's, it's, it's going to be a historic event, but it's going to happen according to God's timetable. And the last time we said it's a signless event. Nothing has to happen before this takes place. That's why we want to be ready. Um, it's the very next thing that's going to happen according to prophecy. Now, you don't hear a lot about this today, unfortunately, because it is kind of controversial. People have all kinds of different views, so a lot of churches just choose not to teach on this stuff. But it's important. It's important that we're ready for that day. And today, we're so consumed with navigating this world here on this earth, how to get a better job, how to get a bigger house, how to buy a better car, how to have a better relationship, how to raise better kids. We're focused on all that. We're missing God's point. He didn't leave us here to be focused on this world, right? Paul said, set your minds where? On the earth? No, on things above. And that's what we are called to do, set our affections on things above. And it seems that today we're a lot more concerned about anticipating the life in this world rather than the life in the next world. Now, it's interesting. You look at politics, you look at elections, you look at all that stuff. It kind of garners our attention. But none of that has anything to do with the kingdom of God. And we have to be reminded about that. And so the world around us as we see it is becoming more and more crazy. Would you agree? I mean, it's just bizarre, some of the things that are happening. And some of those things are in the name of religion. It's just kind of nutty. And so we want to keep these things in perspective. Uh, Theologians tell us that about one-fifth of the Old Testament is made up of prophetic material. It's made up of prophecies. One-fifth of the Old Testament. It's telling about things that will happen sometime in the future. Of that one-fifth of all those prophecies in the Old Testament, at least a third of that is referring specifically to the Lord Jesus Christ. So out of all the prophecies, a fifth of the Old Testament, a third is referring somehow, in some way, some fashion, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And of the material in the Old Testament, that third that refers to Jesus, about a third of it, we're getting down kind of like a funnel, right? A third of it is relating to his first coming, to his incarnation. And you say, well, what does the other two-thirds relate to? The other two-thirds relate to when he comes back. When he comes back. And so we've, we've looked at the idea that Christ is coming back for his church. In the Old Testament, they just necessarily didn't understand this. Just like in the Old Testament, they couldn't understand the church. Paul calls the church a mystery. Why? Who in the world is going to think of a Jew and a Gentile is going to come into one building and worship together? That's unheard of, according to tradition. That would never happen. And it was only when Christ came and united that and, and, and said, hey, no there's, no, there's no male nor female. There's no Greek or pagan, whatever. You're all one in Christ. Once you come to Christ, there's no place for color, creed, anything. Because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? Amen. And so we need to stop all this racial garbage and be focused on the body of Christ. 
All right? It's not about male or female or black or white or Asian, whatever. It's about being part of the body of Christ. And so when we, we think of all those prophecies, two-thirds of those prophecies relate to Jesus Christ somehow. Some relate to his second coming, because a third of them, remember, we refer to his incarnation. The other two-thirds refer to either his second coming or this event we're call, calling the rapture of the church. They didn't know it as that, just like they didn't know the church. As a matter of fact, even before Paul brought this up, nobody knew it. Because he calls it a mystery. He says, what I'm about to tell you is a mystery. And sometimes people don't do well with mysteries. Look over at, at 2 Peter. 2 Peter <clears throat> chapter 3. Because in Peter, when he wrote his second epistle here, he understood <clears throat> that there's always going to be people who will deny that Jesus is ever coming back. There's always going to be people in the world that say, you know what, that's, that's hocus pocus. That's some fanciful story your pastor told you. You really believe Jesus is coming back? Well, yeah, I do because the Bible says so. <laughs> and even back when Peter wrote this epistle, the second epistle, verse 3, it says, knowing this first of all, look at what he says, that scoffers will come in the last days. When are the last days? People always say, when are the last days, Pastor? We're living in the last days. We've been living in the last days since the time of Christ. When Christ came to earth, that began the section of time known as the last days. So we don't have to look forward to the last days. We're living in the last days. And he says, in the last days, people will come out with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Verse 4, look at what it says. They will say, here's what the scoffing is, where is the promise of his coming? You crazy religious nuts, you go to church and you think, Jesus, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, this is a fanciful tale. Don't believe this, the scoffers say. They say, you know what? The world's always existed. It's always going to exist. That's why we've got to protect the planet, the precious planet. See, the argument they're saying is basically this, that nothing ever changes. Nothing changes. Everything has been exactly the same since this whole thing started. That kind of goes... In that flies in the face of how they think things got started, right? Because evolution is all about change. That's not biblical. God says he spoke what we see around us into existence by the power of his word. We didn't crawl out of some slime pit and then spring some lungs so we could live on earth and all of a sudden we're a human being. I mean, what a ridiculous story. I mean, talk about, you know, if you're going to scoff something, scoff that. That deserves scoffing. Well, Peter answers them because these mockers will mock anything that's going to change their typical pattern of behavior, their sinful pattern. And he says in verse 5, for they deliberately overlook this. Notice he calls it a fact. He says they overlook something here, and it's a fact. What is it, Peter? That the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water 
They overlooked the fact that God created everything. That's what Romans 1 says, right? They suppressed the truth of God. And through water, by the word of God, and then verse 6, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged. What's that? It's flooded. It was flooded with water and perished. All but Noah and some of his family, right? And the animals on the ark. And these same scoffers say, well, you don't take that literally. You don't really believe in a big boat where Noah put, how could he put the dinosaurs on there? Go visit the ark experience and you'll figure it out real quick. Go online and do some research. Nobody said they had to be full-grown animals. So it's, it's very possible. It's factual. Peter says this fact that God destroyed everything by water. Why? Because the sin was so great. Only Noah and his family, they forgot that the world was destroyed by water. But look at what he says in verse 7, 2 Peter 3, 7. But by the same word, in other words, it's the same God with the same power of his word. It says the heavens and the earth that now exist, the ones we enjoy now, what's it say, are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So one day, God is going to destroy the heavens and the earth as we know it. It's going to reach a point where it's, it's not even redeemable at that point. He's going to have to start all over. It's a good illustration even of our own salvation. Right? When we come to Christ, what do, what do we have to do? We have to deny ourselves. We have to admit that we are worthless, that we are nothing. And we need to cry out for God's mercy and his grace. We don't say, well, I think I'll just take Jesus and put him and add him to my life. Because <laughs> then I'll be a better person. And if I'm a really, really good person, then God will like me one day and he'll take me to heaven. No. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned. All have gone astray. So if you're sitting here this morning with any, any kind of self-worth in your own heart, that's not from God. That's from the enemy. That's the enemy telling you, you know what, it's not as bad as the pastor says. I mean, sure, you're, you're a good person. You can try harder. Sure, you, you can, you know, stop some of those things you're doing, and then God will love you more. No. Sin isn't what we do, beloved. It's what we are. It's what we are. There's no good in us. That's why we need a Savior. If there was any other way to be saved, somebody would have figured it out by now. But they haven't because there isn't. God says there's only one way. Jesus himself said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The only way you're going to get to the Father is through me. So you need to bring everything. You can't hold anything back when you come to Christ. Because it's not just some little aisle you walk or some hand you raise. It's a complete change in your life. And he has to do it. He has to transform you. Just like here, he's saying, you know what? The earth got so bad, God is going to destroy it by fire on the day of judgment. 
Verse 8 says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. And this is what I wanted to get to. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. What's he saying? He's saying, just because it hasn't happened yet, doesn't mean it's not going to. Do you really think God is restricted to our timetable? Do you think God gets up in the morning and looks at his watch and goes, oh, wow, it's 8 o'clock. God transcends time. There is no time in God's world. That's why the Bible can say, you know what, before the foundation of the world, we were chosen in Christ to be saved. Some of you are older here, but you're not that old. You haven't been here since the foundation of the world. Okay, so how in the world would God choose you before the foundation of the world? Because he transcends time. God is not limited to time. And that's what his point is here. He's like, don't think just because this hasn't happened yet, it's not going to. See, that's why it's going to be such a surprise to people. I think it's going to be a surprise to a lot of people that frequent churches. Think of that day when the Lord comes back, if it happened on a Sunday. Say our service starts at 10 and the worship team gets here at 8. We meet back there in that little circle for prayer. What if there's only one person here? You're looking around, it's Sunday, right? Where is everybody? And all of a sudden, people start to arrive for church, and you're still the only one there. You're going, huh, this is weird. Nobody's showing up, except a couple stragglers. (laughs) And they're wondering the same thing you are. Where, Where is everybody? And that rapture happened. Because you were into church, you were not into Christ, you're left because you weren't saved. You don't think it's serious? It's very serious. And so what he says is, you know what? This day is coming. Don't judge it by your time frame. Judge it by God's who transcends time. And then he says this in verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. He promised. We look at this in John 14, right? Jesus says, I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then what did he tell his disciples? I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you to where I am. That's a promise from our Lord. So either Jesus is a liar and he's never coming back. It was all a ruse. Or he is who he said he is and he is coming back for us. And so the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. <laughs> In other words, we're looking at this and saying, you're saying, Steve, this has been going on for thousands of years. Yep. Not in God's mind. It's like a millisecond of a millisecond of a, it's, no, it's nothing. Because God sees everything is now. He transcends time. And so he says, the Lord isn't slow. He's not, he's not slack in keeping his promises. Look at what it says, but is patient. Aren't you glad God is patient? Think about the next time you grow impatient with somebody. Right? When you're witnessing that person, they just won't bow the knee. They won't come to Christ. And you, I'm not going to share with them anymore. They're not, I'm going to move on. I'm going to shake my dust off and, you know. Thank God God was patient with you and with me. But is patient toward you. Why is he patient? Not wishing that any 
should perish. But that all should reach repentance. See, God has those whom he will save. Some people say, oh, that must mean that nobody's going to perish. No, that doesn't mean that at all. That just means those whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world, they will be saved because God promises to save us. He's not talking about everybody in the world there. He couldn't be. If he was, everybody would be in heaven one day. That's called universalism. We don't believe that. The scripture doesn't teach that. Jesus never taught that. He always drew conditions on salvation. If you're going to follow me, you need to do this. If you're going to do this, you you know, it wasn't just, hey, come on, come on, let's just have a big party and we'll all go to heaven one day. No. So God doesn't want anybody to perish. God forbid he created us. But will there be people who perish? Most definitely. There are some people who will not reach repentance. But then verse 10, it says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. You know, do you ever go on next door and you see how people are stealing stuff from people's houses and just bold? I mean, you got cameras and everything. And people walk right up and grab your package and run away. It's like, you know, I just want to be waiting for them. You know, I just <laughs> hold on there, you know. It'd be fun to put a little, some kind of a line, you know, a clothesline or something down low at night where they couldn't see it and they're running away with a, gotcha, you know. But it says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed Verse 11 says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? In other words, if you're living for everything in this world, guess what? You're missing it. Because it's all going to be burned up. It's all going to be gone. I mean, if you're saving a tree, you're just saving it for the ash heap. We're not saying we shouldn't be good stewards of what God has entrusted to us. We don't want to go out and just pollute to pollute. But the whole idea today has grown to the point where you're worshiping what? The creation rather than the creator. And that needs to stop. Because it's going to be burned up anyway. Verse 12, waiting for the, listen, and hastening for the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Look at verse 13. But according to his promise, according to God's promise, according to Christ's promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter here is talking about the ultimate end. Of the world as we know it. That's not the rapture. That's the judgment that's coming. What 1 Thessalonians does is Paul, remember he's a pastor. He's trying to encourage these people in Thessalonica to say, listen, it's going to get tough. You're going to have some persecutions. You're going to have some sufferings. But you know what? God is going to spare you from the wrath of God. 
What kind of theology would be if Jesus bore our wrath on Calvary to say, well, no, I still have to go through seven years of wrath here on earth? That doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, maybe I'm just looking at, you know, the cookies on the bottom shelf. But why would you think that God would want his church after his son died to save that church and redeem that church and make that church holy and righteous, declare it so? Why do you think God would say, you know what, I think I'm going to make them suffer for seven years because the suffering on Calvary wasn't enough. I, my theology, can't, I can't wrap my mind around that. Now, they do a slick thing. They go in and they pull certain verses out. Well, what about this? What about that? They're losing sight of the fact that, you know what? I don't understand this anymore today than I did three weeks, four, four weeks ago when I started studying it. I don't. I'm just trying to bring to you the face value of what Scripture tells us. In the heart of Paul, he wanted to encourage those in Thessalonica. It wouldn't be too encouraging if I said to you here today, you know what? Hey, I hope you have a good day. By the way, on your way home, you're going to get in a wreck. You're going to be paralyzed, and you're going to live in misery for the next 20 years. That wouldn't be encouraging to you. Paul here is trying to encourage them. And God supernaturally gives him this information about this thing called the rapture, the catching up, the snatching away of the church. And this is the first event where believers are they're, they're snatched away from the earth. We call it the rapture. And we see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, verse 13, about those who are asleep. People have died in the, the, the Thessalonian church, and they were a close church. Paul constantly talks about their love for each other. Some of them died. And now Paul starts talking about this event that's going to happen, the catching away of the church, and they're beginning to wonder, hey, well, what's going to happen to my Uncle Joe who's already dead? Does that mean he misses this event? (laughs) Somehow he doesn't get a glorified body because he's already dead and with the Lord? Or how does this work out? And Paul didn't give us some big theological study here on the rapture of the church. One of the arguments is always, well, there's not a lot of scripture that supports the... It's a mystery. What don't you understand? There's not a lot of information about a mystery. That's what makes it mysterious. That's what, you know, you don't have all the information you need. And when we try to say, well, we want all the information, we want to understand everything, you're you're not going to ever be there. The people that say, oh, yeah, I understand everything in the Bible completely, they've got a problem because they don't understand the mind of God. And and even the word says, you know what? There are some things that I'm not going to share with you. There are certain secret things that belong only to the Lord. And we'll never know. Ever. But that's, that's God's call on all that. And so he doesn't want them to be uninformed. As those that you may not grieve, he says in verse 10, as others do who have no hope. Praise God for the hope we have in Christ. Amen. For since we believe that Jesus died, and this is where we kind of began last week with talking about the pillars of this understanding of the snatching away of the rapture. The first thing is the death of Christ. You have to first understand that Jesus died for you. Or you're never going to be part of the rapture. Because only Christians, only those who are elect, only those who have come to Christ by faith are the ones who are included in this special event called the rapture. So the first base there is you've got to understand that Christ died for you. 
He died for your sins. And if you believe that and you commit your life to him, he will cleanse you of your sins. He'll make you a new person. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And you'll get the promise of living for him, with him for all eternity. So first pillar was Jesus died. Secondly, we talked about this, that Jesus rose from the grave. The resurrection of Jesus. That's kind of the second pillar, you could say. It's important that we understand that God will treat all those who died trusting in Jesus. If you have a relative who was a Christian and they died trusting in Jesus, God is going to treat them the same way he treated his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, because they are in Christ. Well, how did he treat Christ? Well, he resurrected him. See, that's, that's a message of hope. That's why when you have a funeral for a believer, it, it's not, uh, you know, oh, I'll never see him again. It's like, hey, see you later. <laughs> you know, I'll see you when I get there, right? Because you know that one day you're guaranteed that. Not because of your goodness, but because of God's grace in your life. He will treat us the same way he treated Jesus. Well, when Jesus died, where did his soul go? Did his soul just go to the ground and go to sleep? No, it was alive. It was, the Bible says, proclaiming victory, proclaiming triumph over the enemy. His body was in the tomb, not for very long. Maybe if we die, our our body's going to be in there a lot longer than Jesus's was. We don't know. I mean, you could die today and Jesus could come back on Wednesday. Or, you know, and you don't know. Maybe you're not in the tomb. Maybe you never made it to. Maybe you're at the mortuary. Who knows? But that body's going to be resurrected. I mean, think about that. And it will be rejoined with your living soul. So when you die, your spirit goes to be with the Father, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And so he he wants us to understand this. And we, Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians. We've been through there. We're not going to go back there. But 1 Corinthians 15, it says that Christ is the first fruits. And then afterwards, those that are at Christ's coming. Hebrews 13, 20 says God raised him up. God will also raise us up. John 14, 19, because I live, you shall live also. 1 Corinthians 6.14, and God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up, Paul says, by his power. Incredible hope in the resurrection of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.14 says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. That's our hope of resurrection. Yeah, this body's getting old. The body begins to hurt and you know, you start having issues or whatever. Who cares? It's just a tent we're dwelling in for a short period of time. And then we rid this tent and then we get a glorified body. I mean, what an incredible blessing. What an incredible hope we have. It says, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus And he's going to bring them back, the souls that have gone to be with the Lord. They will come back with the Lord. And that's why it says the dead in Christ will rise first. 
They'll be rejoined in their glorified state. And so we have the resurrection of Christ. And the one we didn't get to last week was the the revelation of Christ. And it says there, we declare to you by the word of the Lord, back to 1 Thessalonians 4.15, this was what we were talking about. This is a mystery until Paul brought this up. God somehow supernaturally, the Bible wasn't completed. 1 Thessalonians was probably one of the first letters that was written before Revelation, all that. They didn't have all that information. Okay, they had some of the Old Testament books. And so... He says, you know what, I'm going to declare this to you by word from the Lord. The Lord brought this mystery to my mind, somehow, directly. It's from the Lord. It's an authoritative tone in the original language. This isn't something you trifle around with. It's not like, hey, you know, hey, you know I got something to tell you. No, this is like, man, I, I can't believe this. This is amazing. This is truth from God, direct revelation. Paul referred to the rapture as a a mystery, a truth that's formerly hidden but now revealed. How that happened, we're not told. But this new revelation, this unveiled mystery, the rapture, is not some theological point that's on shaky foundation like I talked about a couple years or weeks ago where people say, well, you know, there's not a lot of proof for that. There's not a lot of... I wholeheartedly believe this is exactly what Scripture teaches. We're not given a lot of information on it, but it completely makes sense in my mind. And so we have the death, the resurrection, and the uh, revelation of Christ. But it also tells us who's going to participate in this. Look at verse 15. 1 Thessalonians Chapter 4, verse 15. It says that we who are alive, isn't it interesting that the Apostle Paul, he didn't say you who are alive. He said we who are alive. So he actually thought that's how imminent this event is. This could happen now. <laughs> we, could, we could be part of this now. We who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So who are the participants? There's two groups here. The first group is those who are alive at the coming of the Lord. Jesus comes back in the clouds for his church. There's going to be certain people on earth who are Christians who are alive. What's going to happen? They're going to be immediately transformed into their glorified state with their body and everything. And they're going to be caught up to be with the Lord. In the clouds. But then you also have those who have fallen asleep, he says. You have another group of people here. Well, what happens with them? He says, for this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Their bodies are going to be resurrected from the grave, or from the ash heap, or from the ocean, or from wherever. God created this. I mean, he can just snap his fingers, and boy, your body is completely back to where it was. doesn't matter if it was mutilated. doesn't matter if it was eaten by wild animals, or fish, or sharks, or whatever. People come up with all these crazy scenarios. Well, how's he going to do this? You know, how's, my, my uncle was cremated. How's God going to put his body back together? I don't know how he's going to do it. I'm not God, but God can surely figure it out. <laughs> 
I mean, think about it. We came out of dust, right? I mean, we forget these things. So it's not an issue with God. And that should answer a lot of the questions people ask when you die. Well, what, what's the right thing to do with the body after, after it dies? We don't want to make light of this. I think the body is something that God created, so it should be treated respectfully. But a lot of people, just for financial reasons, say, you know what? I can't afford a plot of ground, and I can't afford a casket. And by the time you get done with some of the things, you're talking thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars dollars $50,000 to put a dead body in, in the dirt. It's crazy. And those people just want to make money, so then, you know, you go right down the road. Well, well, now we can also, you know, your uncle was real special, so we can have 50 doves come out of a cage and, and be sent up to heaven with crazy talk, right? And people do all this stuff. There's nothing wrong with having a memorial for somebody, but we're not there to worship a body. A dead body is a dead body. There's no, that, that's not that person. Their soul is not there. You go to a, a funeral and you're standing there and it's an open casket and you hear people say, oh, doesn't she just look beautiful? I want to go, no, she looks dead. I mean, we, we need to think about these things. We don't want to be disrespectful to the dead. I'm not saying that. But that's not the priority. And that's what he says here. He says, hey, you know what? Those who have fallen asleep, they're going to be They're going to be transformed. And he had a proper anticipation of an expectation of the Lord's return. He was looking for this event. Unlike many throughout church, throughout the church, the apostle didn't make the mistake of saying, well, I think it's going to happen on this day. I'm going to write a book. And no, he didn't do that because he knew it was him. It could happen at any time. He understood that. He accepted Christ's words in Matthew 24, 36, when the Lord said, But concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Jesus, in his humanity, did not know when this event was happening, when his return was going to happen. In Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, it says, So when they had come together, they asked, the disciples, they asked the Lord, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Remember, that's what they were focused on, right? They were, that's all they were focused on. Jesus is going to come. He's, he's here now. He's the Messiah. We're going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to take over the Romans, and we're going to have victory. That's what they were looking for. They were looking for a political Messiah. Jesus says, not so fast. You don't understand what's going to happen when I go to Jerusalem. I am actually going to die. What? No. Remember Peter, that would never happen, man. No way, Lord. And what does the Lord say? Get behind me, Satan. What are you talking? You don't know what you're talking about, Peter. You have no idea. And so he says, when they came together, when is this going to happen? In verse 7, he says, and he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus is saying, you don't need to know the time. You don't need to know when this will happen. You just need to be ready so when it does, you're ready. Don't worry about what time of the day or is it going to happen in the morning? Is it going to happen in the evening? You know, oh, I hope it doesn't happen in the middle of my show. You know, I really like my show. I want to see the end, the conclusion. Crazy. None of that's going to matter in eternity. 
But at the same time, as, as, as Paul looked at this event as very, with an expect, expecting heart, he also understood in Matthew 25 where Jesus talked about the parable of the wise and the foolish virgins, which illustrated the foolishness of not being constantly prepared for the Lord's return. You can read that on your own, Matthew 25. But the Lord expressed the point of this this parable when he says, Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. It could happen at any time. And so we want to be aware of that. But these two groups, he says, We shall not all sleep in 1 Corinthians 15, but we shall all be changed. He includes himself because he really thought it was going to happen to himself. So you had the living who are going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye, and you have the dead who will be raised to life, rejoined in their glorified state. And this is what he's been telling them the whole book. If you think about it, go back to chapter 1 real quick, verse 10. He says, well, we're waiting for his son from heaven. Paul says to them in verse 13 of chapter 3, he says, So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before the God, before our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. In other words, yeah, Jesus left, but he's coming back. And guess what? He's going to bring everybody that, that died in Christ. And then their bodies are going to be resurrected. They're going to be joined. And then we're going to join them in the clouds. He even says it in chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Talk about confidence. Even in Titus chapter 2 verse 13, it says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Paul was looking forward to this, but he also acknowledged in 1 Corinthians 6.14, he says, and God raised the Lord up, and he will also raise us up. He includes himself. So he says, hey, I'm waiting for it. It could happen any time, but you know what? I may die first, and that's okay, because God's coming back, and he is going to raise us up. Well, that takes us down to Verse 16, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. He goes over this again. We call this the plan of the rapture. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we shall always be with the Lord. And so he's reassuring the Thessalonians here that their loved ones who died didn't miss out. They're still going to get resurrected. And he gives kind of a breakdown of what's going to happen here. He says, first of all, the Lord himself will return for his church. It's not an angel. It's not an angel of the Lord. It's the Lord himself. He won't send angels for the church. He's going to come back himself at the rapture. That's in contrast to what it says about gathering of the elect that takes place at the second coming in Mark 13. Secondly, it says Jesus will not just come in a personal form, but he will descend from heaven. Where is Jesus? Jesus is in heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. That's what the Bible says very clearly. After he ascended, that's where he went. 
And now we're waiting for him to return. At his trial before the Sanhedrin, the martyr Stephen cried out in Acts 7, verse 56. He says, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Wow. He got a glimpse into heaven before he even got there. That's pretty neat. The writer of Hebrews said of Christ in verse 3 of chapter 1, When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So the Lord himself is not floating down here, visiting you while you shave in the mirror in the morning. You know, that's the people that tell you, oh, I saw Jesus. No, I'm sorry, he didn't. He's in heaven. And apparently you're not. (laughs) You don't have some 3D vision or something that you can see through. the. It's ridiculous what people come up with. But it says he will descend from heaven where he's at right now. And then thirdly, it says he will do so with a shout, a command. And it has the idea of a military command. This isn't something to be toyed around with. I remember early in school when I was going to school for criminology and uh, I joined ROTC, Army ROTC. And was in that for a couple years and it was fun. You know, he did climbing, go shoot guns and stuff. It was was pretty cool. But I remember, you know, the first day, you know, we weren't dressed in any uniforms. We didn't get measured for our uniforms yet or anything. And we were out there just in our jeans and stuff. And, and, you know, this sergeant comes out and he goes, you guys line up, you know. Yeah, okay. (laughs) He thinks he's a real soldier, you know. I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're taking this as a joke. And it took all about five minutes for this guy to get our attention and realize this is serious business. And this was just ROTC. I mean, this was, you know, I mean, military guys look at ROTC and go, yeah, okay, thanks for your service, but, you know. But it, it was very serious. You know, you dare not. You know, if the guy said, attention, you need to stand there and go, oh, I'm not going to listen to him. You couldn't. It was against the rules, okay? You had a command given to you. You had to obey. It doesn't matter. And this is what this is here. And it's shout, the dead saints in their resurrected bodies will be joined with the raptured living believers in the ranks. And the Lord's shout of command will be similar, I believe, to what he commanded Lazarus. In John eleven forty three. it says, He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth! And they say that, boy, thank God he used his name. He didn't speak to all the dead. They all would have come forth. That's the power of God. That's the power of God. This is the hour when John 5.25 says, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Well, who is it to those who hear? Those who have put their faith or trust in Christ. Those who are alive in Christ. Because when a believer dies, we've talked about this, they're not dead, they're just sleeping. Right? The Bible just refers to believers as sleeping. Why? Because they're, they're living. Their, their body's just not functioning, but their soul is. The righteous dead of the church age will be the first to rise. And that must have greatly comforted the Thessalonians, realizing, oh, my relative, you mean he's going to come back to life? Yeah! And he's, you're going to join him. 
Wow. What an encouragement for these people. And then fourthly, it says the voice of the archangel will sound. There's no definite article here in the Greek text, which literally reads an angel, an archangel. In Jude, the only other passage in scripture that mentions an archangel, the archangel is Michael. So maybe God has a couple of different archangels. Maybe we don't know. We're not told. Jewish tradition says that there are seven archangels, but that's all it is. It's Jewish tradition. It's not scriptural. It's impossible to say who the archangel or whose voice will be heard at this rapture. Whoever it is, he adds his voice to the Lord's shout of command. And then it says, fifthly, the Lord's command and the archangel's voice will be added. There'll be added the sound of a trumpet. The sound of a trumpet. And trumpets were used for various reasons throughout Scripture. They sounded forth Israel's feasts. Um, convocations, things like that. They, they sounded the alarm when they were going into battle or they were being attacked. Whenever there was a necessary gathering of people, you would have a trumpet sound or a ram's horn sound. I remember down at the Shepherds Conference one year, first day, the first evening, we're gathering in there in the big worship center and all of a sudden you heard this... It's the ram's horn. Somebody's up there blowing the ram's horn. And they're saying, hey, we're about ready to start. And it got your attention. It was loud. And he wasn't even using a microphone. You can imagine a trumpet. I mean, trumpets pierce. I mean, if they're not played correctly, they can really hurt your ears. Right? Now, the trumpet at the rapture has no connection to the trumpets of judgment Some people say, was that the same thing? Revelation. No, it talks about the trumpets of judgment in Revelation 8 to 11. No, it has absolutely nothing to do with that. But it has the purpose of assembling God's people and to signal God's deliverance of them. So it would be appropriate at the rapture to hear a trumpet because that's what the purpose of trumpets were. And then it says... The next event in this unfolding of the plan is the dead in Christ will rise first. And he points out that, you know, just because you died before the rapture, you're not like a lesser Christian or you're not, you know. No, we're all all in this together. They will rise first. I think that's why they did that. As I mentioned before, somebody says, well, they had to catch up to everybody else because they're six feet underground. You know, so, but that's obviously not necessary. And 1 John 3, 2 says, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. So those who are in Christ in life will be so with him in death. That's what Bible, the Bible says in Romans, right? Nothing. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And guess what? It mentions death as one of those things. Seventh, it is when the living believers, after those who are dead, are caught up and they are transformed and receive their glorified bodies. In that moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we're going to be changed we're going to be rescued from the grasp of Satan. We're going to be rescued from the fallen flesh that we occupy. 
We're going to be rescued from the world evil system that surrounds us. And we're going to be rescued. We're going to be spared by God's hand from the coming wrath of God upon this earth. So we don't want to get into specifics. Well, when is this actually going to happen? I don't know. Nobody knows. And that's what should encourage us to be ready. We don't want to be caught off guard. It should motivate us to live for the Lord 24-7. Now, on the back of your outline there, I'm just going to read these points, and we're not really even going to go into it because it's a whole other study on its own, and we don't have time. But I put down there, John MacArthur had listed nine arguments in favor of a pre-tribulational rapture. In other words, remember, down there at the little graph, we believe that um, the, we have the church age, and then all of a sudden, what ends the church age? The church age ends when the last person whom God elected comes to faith in Christ. When that happens, that's when I believe the rapture will happen, because there's no need to keep us down there any longer. The only reason we're kept here on earth, I believe, is to fulfill the Great Commission. What's that? Go out into all the world and preach and make disciples, Right? And when we preach, we preach to some who are elect and we preach to some who aren't. Well, guess what? When the elect hear the gospel, at some point, because they are elect, they will respond affirmatively. They will come to faith in Christ. And they will be added to his church. And when that last person, who's the holdout, whoever it may be, comes to Christ, that's when this taking away, this snatching up, this gathering away of the church will happen. And then you can imagine, I mean, think how bad the earth is with Christians here. Okay. Think what happens when, you, when they're all gone. I mean, you know, a lot of people really believe that this whole mentality of aliens... Okay, the whole, oh, there's aliens and other, God created other worlds. He never told us about, well, that has no place in the Bible. The Bible doesn't speak to that, right? And so people say, well, don't you believe in aliens? I don't, personally. I mean, because that kind of would make us kind of secondhand, you know, well, I created them too. You're not that special. And that's not, the word of God makes us very special as his creation. And so, A lot of people believe in all that, and what they say is, when this event happens, what they're going to say is, you know what? The aliens came and took all those crazy religious people out, and they're gone. Thank God. Let's have a party. And then God will unleash his wrath on all the unrighteousness that plays out. There's a couple points here. The earthly kingdom of Christ promised in Revelation 6 to 18, and you can look this up on your own, does not mention the church as being on earth. So where did it go? We believe it was raptured. And Revelation 1 to 3 uses the Greek word for church 19 times, and then all of a sudden it stops. Interesting. Secondly, Revelation 19 does not mention a rapture, even though... That is where a post-tribulational rapture, those people that believe the church will go through the tribulation, there's people that believe that, and then they'll be raptured up after that. I mean, what's the use of that? How comforting is that? Yeah, I'm coming back for you, but you're going to have hell to pay until then. That doesn't seem too comforting to me. 
And so it doesn't mention a rapture in, in Revelation 19. Therefore, you can assume that it already happened. It already happened. Thirdly, a post-tribulational rapture renders the rapture itself inconsequential. The whole point of a rapture, of a catching away, is for comfort. To spare them from God's wrath, we're told. Well, if you're going to have to deal with God's wrath anyway, why even have a rapture? Fourthly, if God raptures and glorifies all believers just prior to the inauguration of the millennial kingdom, that's what the post tribulational rapturists believe, no one would be left to populate and propagate the earthly kingdom. There's not going to be anybody here. Why? Because they say they're all going to be raptured up. Fifthly, the New Testament does not warn of any impending, and this is probably one of the the strongest arguments, I believe. The New Testament doesn't warn of any impending tribulation such as is experienced during Daniel's 17th week for church-age believers. It does warn of error. It does warn of false prophets. It does warn against ungodly living. It does warn of the present tribulation. But it doesn't say believers are going to have a part in any of that. Sixthly, Paul's instructions here, and this is very strong too, it it was to comfort them. And if they're going to have to go through the tribulation anyway, that doesn't seem too comforting. And the The seventh thing here, the sequence of events of Christ's coming following the tribulation demands a pre-tribulational rapture. A comparing and contrasting of rapture passages with second coming passages yields strong indicators that the rapture could not be post-tribulational. For example, at the rapture, Christ gathers his own. But at the second coming, angels gather the elect. At the rapture, resurrection is prominent. But regarding the second coming, Scripture does not mention the resurrection. At the rapture, Christ comes to reward believers. But at the second coming, Christ comes to judge the earth. At the rapture, the Lord snatches away true believers from the earth. But at the second coming, he takes away unbelievers At the rapture, unbelievers remain on earth, whereas at the second coming, believers remain on earth. Concerning the rapture, Scripture does not mention the establishment of Christ's kingdom, but at his his second coming, Christ sets up his kingdom. And at the rapture, believers will receive glorified bodies, whereas at the second coming, no one receives glorified bodies. Some very strong indicators there the eighth thing there certain teachings of jesus demand a pre-tribulational rapture when you think of the parable of the the wheat and the tares it portrays the reapers the angels removing the tares unbelievers from amongst the wheat in order to judge the tares which demonstrates that the second coming the lord has unbelievers removed from the believers however at the rapture he takes believers from among the unbelievers So there's a lot of different parables that point that out. And then the ninth point, he says, is Revelation 3.10 teaches that the Lord will remove the church prior to the tribulation. In the Greek, the phrase, I will also keep you from, can mean nothing other than I will prevent you from entering into this time of tribulation. So it's, it's, it's rather clear, I would say, in Scripture. And I, I think that 
that should, as it did the Thessalonians, give us hope that we can continue to live each day fully for the Lord, knowing that at any moment, any moment, he will return for his church. And that's what we have to look forward to. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, that you have gathered us here today to be built up in our faith. And Lord, we pray that your word would do that. Lord, we know that it's, it's the powers in your word. Uh, and, and Lord, we pray that anyone here today or within hearing of this message that has not put their faith or trust in Christ. Lord, I pray that they would resign their questions and their appeals and their arguments to the Lord where they belong and that they would cry out to you in faith and trust and say, Lord, save me. I know I'm a sinner, but I don't know what to do with this sin. Well, God does. God paid for that sin on Calvary through Christ. And if you cry out and you say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, save me. I want to follow Jesus the rest of my life here on this earth. He'll meet you right where you're at, and he will do just that. He will save you. He will answer your prayer, and you will become born again. And the very Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, will enter into you, and you will be given power to live the Christian life that he's called you to, a life that's separate, that's holy, a life that is lived for his honor and his glory, not your own. So there's a dramatic shift in your life when you come to Christ. Don't let anybody tell you anything different. It's not just adding Jesus to your life. It's a radical commitment. And anybody in this room who's made that commitment can tell you, yeah, it shook my family up, it shook me up, it changed my whole life. But I would never, ever change a thing. Don't believe the lie that Satan's telling you. Ah, That's just going to ruin all your fun. No. No, your soul is precious to God, and he gave everything he could to save you from your sin. And so I pray that this morning you would cry out to him in faith and acknowledge him, acknowledge Christ as your Lord and Savior. We know that only happens by your grace, and so for that, Lord, we're thankful. We pray as believers that we'd be encouraged, that we'd be looking forward to the time when Christ returns. We thank you for our time here this morning. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and we'll close with one last song.